0: The, f- the first question I had was, um, with like the 48 Loves of Power and, and the Free Strategies of War and, and pretty much many of the books that you've done, there is there seems to be like an apprehension w- with, with people kind of wanting to get into them and reading them because they have like a moral standpoint on them. They think they're immoral and so forth. Why do you think that is? Is it, is it something that people see within themselves that they're frightened of, or do they just want to view the, the world in kind of like a black and white term?
1: Well, I think my books are kind of a strange sort of Rorschach test. So you bring your own kind of psychological background, your own weaknesses, your own insecurities to my books, and they tend to trigger certain responses depending on your own experiences. So I've noticed that there are people who've had traumatic experiences in their past. Perhaps they've dealt with a con artist or a seducer who really, really manipulated them, and they have a lot of anger. And my book kind of triggers that again, and and they're upset. And I understand that when they complain to me about it, I, I have empathy for their position. But then there are others, a lot of people, who have a lot of guilt when it comes to things like power or strategy. Um, They think that there's something kind of evil or wrong. They have this misguided notion that everybody in life should just be honest, just be themselves. Whereas the truth is we're never really ourselves. As a social animal, we're always wearing masks. We're continually acting. And there are people who just want to deny reality. They they're they're like children. They want to believe what they want to believe. They want to believe their fantasies about what life should be like. But if you looked at yourself in the course of a day, you would realize anybody would realize how many different masks you wear. You're not the same person that you are when you're with your boss as you're with an intimate partner or with a colleague. So you're constantly adapting yourself to, to your audience. And if you need power or if you want to persuade somebody to do what you want them to do, because we're always in that position, we have to persuade people to hire us, to buy our products, to, you know, go see our film. Um, in that situation, you have to use some tactics, some strategy Because people aren't naturally just going to say, oh, I love your book. I love your podcast. I'm going to listen. You have to seduce them. You have to influence them. And that requires strategic thinking and, I hate to say, a degree of manipulation. And for me, understanding this basic principle about life, about how it is in the real world, is what makes a person an adult. And some people get really angry about that. They don't want that reality revealed. They want their fantasy and they see the book as evil. And I don't mean to generalize because I don't think I can say this categorically. But oftentimes I've noticed that people who are uncomfortable with my book are people who are very, very manipulative in life. They're very passive aggressive. They don't realize that it. it's unconscious but they play all kinds of games. And I think unconsciously they're upset by my book because it's actually making them deep down aware of something inside themselves. So I think there's two kinds of people who judge my book negatively. One I can understand and I deal with and I talk to people like that. Another group are people who I think are hypocritical and are not coming to terms with basic facts about human nature.
0: I've noticed that. I, um, I was in Los Angeles for a three-month period working with a client, and uh, a friend of mine was doing this um, a course of sorts where he would go in and it, there was like a bunch of these seminars. And within these seminars, there, there was constant preaching of there is one true self and it's the most authentic self and i i felt that was very contradictory towards how he was behaving outside those seminars but he would always preach that in order to be the your, your best self you have to be authentic and i thought that was a very abstract um notion uh, why do you think that with like especially i've noticed in america there is this like philosophy of being the most authentic You can be and and what does that even mean in in certain cases
1: well I agree with you there's two ways I look at that Um, number one we don't really know who we are and I want people to admit that when they look at their books we assume that we that the one thing we know for sure is who we are but the truth of it is is that we really don't know who we are we have many different selves there isn't never one self This is a concept that's very deeply ingrained in Buddhism that's greatly influenced me. Our self is constantly in fluctuation. We're not the same person we were as a child. In the course of a day, we have different moods. We have one self when we're with a lover. We have another self when we're with a boss, as I alluded to earlier. So to think that there's one consistent, stable self is an illusion. And neuroscientists have pointed this out. The brain tries to create for us this sense that we have a stable, consistent world so that we don't, you know, we're not constantly freaking out about the actual chaos of life. So we even simplify ourselves into this idea that we have this one consistent, authentic self. On the other hand, I do think there is some truth to the notion of authenticity. I talk about it in my book, The Art of Seduction. And I talk about it in my new book. But the way I look at it differently than this person that's giving the course that you mentioned is that your authentic self is actually coming to terms with this chaos and accepting it and not trying to imagine that you're some consistent, great, do-good, or moralizing person. And the other thing is you have a dark side. You have dark desires. You have aggressive impulses. You have anger, you have things that I call it the shadow. That's not me, it's a concept from psychology. You have a shadow side to yourself. Well, that's also part of being authentic and you've tended to repress it. So embracing the many different sides of who you are, including embracing the fact that you're not nearly as good or moral as you think you are, actually would add up to being more authentic but I don't think that's at all the definition that this this guru or coach was giving because that's not the common definition of it.
0: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. You you uh, mention in, in many interviews in your book that one's relationship with reality is one of the most important things for them to succeed in life. And in today's like social media world, it seems like the it seems like reality is even more far away than possible things are so constructed that yeah. it's hard for people to be in touch with reality what what right. would you say some of the antidotes that to that are
1: you know it is something that we i discussed in the 50th law and i also discuss in my new book um to ground yourself in reality you will first have to ground yourself in yourself um you have to know who you are you have to you have to um, detach yourself from social media, from all the other influences that people are giving you. So when you don't know yourself, when you're not in touch with your own tastes and desires, your own impulses, what makes you different, what makes you unique, you are alienated from the one basic reality, who you are, and it creates I think a lot of anxiety and a lot of depression because we all have uh, a deep need to sort of express our, our personal uh, opinions, our personal tastes to find some outlet in some career to give expression to what makes us different from others. And so if you're constantly listening to what other people are saying, if you're plugged in to the, you know, to the matrix continually, and that's your only reality, then really what you're doing is you're never understanding who you are. What you see when you look in the mirror is a reflection of all the other opinions that other people have. Opinions of you, opinions of politics, opinions of what's politically correct, of what's good and what's bad. You become a reflection of other people. And being alienated from yourself Is a deeply, deeply depressing experience. It can lead to 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 taking drugs, to stimulants, to all kinds of addictions. So, you you know, we can say certain basic things about yourself. You you were born, um, you know, very different from other people. Your brain is wired in a very unique way. Your DNA is unique. You are going to die someday. You're mortal. You have to uh, fend for yourself in this world. People aren't going to give you things. This is sort of a basic kind of ground for your feet to sit, stand upon. And understanding that is sort of understanding reality. And a lot of people, you know, are, 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 are fleeing from that because living in that kind of matrix world of social media and all the fantasies, you know, there's there's. You don't really have to confront yourself. You don't have to deal with your own demons, with your own weaknesses, with your own flaws. But you pay a terrible price. So, I mean, there are many ways that people need to ground themselves in reality. And I could go on and on, and I talk about it in many of my books. But I think the principal source of the problem is that people are running away from themselves. And on social media, that process is is greatly accelerated.
0: You know, I, I was watching an interview where you you give a your own kind of a, a different spiel on uh,
1: narcissism. Could you go into that a little bit? You... The different, my different approach, I mean, it's not totally different. There are other people, I was influenced heavily by certain psychologists like Heinz Kohut and others. But my particular take on it is, and it goes to a deep theme in my new book, The Laws of Human Nature, is that humans are basically we're all basically pretty much born with the same kind of of wiring of the brain this is what i call human nature obviously we have individual differences and we just discussed that but there are certain traits that are common to humans and so i want us to stop moralizing and dividing people into their narcissists they're aggressive they're people who are envious they're you know people who have this problem or that problem, we all share the same nature. And so we all have narcissistic tendencies. And I like to put it on a spectrum. So to become a human, to to survive childhood and to survive the harshness of life, we have to become, to a certain degree, self-absorbed. We have to look to learn, to to look after ourselves. And what we do is we develop self-esteem, a kind of a love for ourselves, so that when we have bad moments in life, when we feel depressed, when things aren't going so well, um, instead of sinking deeper and deeper into ourselves, we can tell ourselves, you know, really, I'm not so bad. I don't really deserve all of these bad things. I'm actually a decent person. I'm, I'm worth something. And that pulls us back up and we don't fall deeper into self-absorption. But there are a lot of people, because of a broken childhood or problems in their earliest years, who never develop that self-esteem, that ability to raise themselves up when they're they're not feeling loved enough or they don't have enough attention. Because in life, there are always going to be moments where you feel like people aren't paying attention to you. You're not getting recognition. And what happens to deep narcissists, that's what I call them, is when they have a moment where something goes bad, where they're not getting what they want in life, they don't have that inner kind of thermostat that raises them up through their self-esteem that says, I'm a good person, I'm worthy. And their only way of dealing with the frustration and the anger that they have in these moments is to try Desperately to get more attention from people, to do whatever they can to get validation and recognition from the people around them. They can't get it from themselves. They can only get it from other people. And so they don't have that thermostat that raises them up. So when they have bad moments, they fall deeper and deeper and deeper into self-absorption. And they can never really, really get interested in other people. And you'll notice with deep narcissists. That their view of the people around them is they don't see the world the same way you or I do. Um, they see other people as extensions of themselves, as what Heinz Kohut calls self objects. They're objects that they can use for their own amusement, for their own power, for their own aggrandizement, etc. And so, um, you know, I say that we all have narcissistic tendencies. So if something if I go through a crisis in life, my natural tendency is to become more self-absorbed, more narcissistic. And I, you know, this will happen to everyone. But there are people who are more trapped into that and can never get out of it. And they're very difficult to deal with because um, they can be kind of charming. If you notice a lot of narcissists. Uh, if you've known deep narcissists, as I call them, in their childhood, they became used to being very dramatic and being very over the top to get attention. And they knew how to charm people to get them to like them, because that's their deep need. They have a huge emptiness inside. And as adults, they can be very charming and very charismatic. I've worked for people like that. I've known CEOs and entrepreneurs like that. And you know, I've fallen under their spell as well. Um, But they can be maddening because after a month or two, you start feeling like they don't really pay any attention to me. It's really all about them. They're just using me. And once they get you hooked into their world in a intimate relationship or a work relationship, it's very difficult to get out because relationships with narcissists can be charged with all kinds of weird emotions. So, The main thing I try and show in my book is I want you to recognize that you have these tendencies as well and to try and use the self-love that you have and turn it into empathy so that you can be more interested in people instead of so self-absorbed. And the second thing is to be able to recognize the many toxic deep narcissists in the world so that you don't get embroiled in their drama.
0: Do people with narcissism, if deep narcissists as you refer to them, is it complete? Would they ever be able to change, or is it pretty much set? Would you say?
1: Um, no, I mean there is redemption. Uh, you look at a lot of great artists, sometimes even scientists or entrepreneurs, and they can be very deep narcissists. You know, particularly in the art world, but I think I think someone like a Steve Jobs was definitely a deep narcissist. Um, and their redemption, so I call the, what we need to be is a healthy narcissist because we're all narcissists. And there's two ways to be a healthy narcissist. It is to put your attention into your work. So narcissism means you're absorbed in yourself, in your emotions, your feelings, your ego. And the opposite is to, is to immerse yourself in something outside yourself. And that can be your work or that can be other people. And so the redemption for a deep narcissist often comes through their work. So you'll notice that great artists and filmmakers and poets and writers, they may not be the best people to be around. They may not be the best people to have relationships with, Um, but they're really good with their work because they've put all of that energy and all that desire for attention into their work as a way of kind of getting what they want. And that is definitely a form of redemption. Um, I talk in in my book about, well, actually, I cut it from the book, uh, so I shouldn't talk about this, but there's the scientist Robert Oppenheimer, who was intensely narcissistic. He was sort of one of the brainchilds behind the atomic bomb and, and the Manhattan Project, but he was also one of the world's most brilliant physicists. But this guy was an insane narcissist. And he knew it and he knew that he was diseased. And through the Manhattan Project and through working with other scientists on other projects, he was able to get outside of himself and pour all his energy into working with people and working on a team. So that is the only source of redemption for a deep narcissist. It's not easy and a lot of them can't get up to that point. I worked for a CEO, um, I was a a consultant on his board of directors, who was a deep narcissist, very charismatic individual. And like many entrepreneurs, with that background, he was able to start an incredible business because he had so much energy and he did have a lot of charisma and he was very creative. But as with someone like, like an Elon Musk, that... Deep self-absorption, that inability to understand how other people perceive him, is like a wall that they can never get past, and it creates problems that end up being their undoing. And so it's sometimes hard for a deep narcissist to grow, to to learn from their mistakes. So even though they can find redemption through their work, oftentimes they're tripped up by their inability to look at themselves and learn from their experiences. Interesting. Interesting.
0: So, would, so you would say that Elon Musk is a deep narcissist or, or has trouble with that? Uh,
1: I, I mean, I don't want to be an armchair psychologist. Um, I know that uh, my friend Neil Strauss did a, a profile of him in the Rolling Stone, in Rolling Stone magazine several years ago that kind of hinted at that. Um, I don't know him personally. Uh, I do know somebody who do, does know him and says that he's not as troubled individuals, people think that he's more kind of conscious of what he's doing. He's a bit there's a kind of a Donald Trump aspect to him where he's he's Donald Trump is certainly a deep narcissist. But where he's where he's very dramatic and he's kind of playing, he knows he's playing a game. But, yeah, I do think he definitely has deep narcissistic traits. And I think we've seen plenty of signs of that.
0: There seems to be like a a fetishization of him, especially in the entrepreneurial world. Uh, Do you think that's a healthy thing or an unhealthy thing? Because he's kind of always used as the example, as the, you know, the person who risked it all and and made this huge gamble.
1: I talk in my book about Howard Hughes, who for many years was idealized as this kind of maverick business person, this genius who knew how to... to design airplanes and create a great airplane business, you know, uh, in the airline industry, etc. And the truth of it was that he was an extremely messed up individual who was a terrible businessman. He was probably one of the worst businessmen that ever lived. Everything that he tried to do that on a big scale failed. He inherited a very successful business from his father, and then once he started his airline business, He sold it to someone else, and that was the airline part of it that did very well. But everything that he held on to was a massive disaster because he was a micromanager who could never um, delegate to other people. But instead, people had to idealize him and see him as this great maverick figure. Um, They didn't want to look at the reality. Um, When it comes to Elon Musk, I mean, we're sort of dazzled. I talk about in, in, in laws of human nature that we humans tend to be dazzled by appearances, by what people show us, and the Tesla car and that that whole um, factory that he created is wow, that's amazing, and you know electric cars, brilliant. But the fact is, and I saw this years ago. Somebody very smart about the business told me that he, this is never going to work, and it's not going to work because the car business is a really complicated industry to succeed in. It's extremely capital intensive. You can only make money if you create a system where you, know, you produce so many cars per day on a factory line and you have to have massive scale of, of uh, uh, you know, with, from within to kind of market these cars and dealerships and everything else. And Elon Musk is not the person to handle all these details. He's so into his visions and his and everything, and he's not delegating, and he's not creating the right chain of command, and he's got a board of directors that are all a bunch of yes-men and yes-women. He's not understanding the many, many difficulties in the car business. He thought, wow, just my brilliance is enough, and it's not enough. And so um, – you know, it's, it's okay to fetishize the visionary aspect, but what we should really fetishize are people who execute, who take their visions like Thomas Edison did in the 19th century, who was probably one of the greatest entrepreneurs who lived, who would have an incredible vision. He had this vision that someday the electric light bulb that he was inventing would light an entire city. And it was such a ridiculous idea at the time that nobody could take it seriously. And yet he executed it, and it took incredible, painstaking attention to detail—the kind of attention to detail that an Elon Musk doesn't have. We might fetishize someone like a Steve Jobs, and I find more that more rational, because on the level of execution, he was actually quite brilliant, particularly in his in his second go at Apple. You know, he he would have a vision for what the future of gadgetry and technology would be which would be a device like the iPod, which would later turn into the iPhone. And he knew that he himself was not the technical genius to put that all together. He needed all these other people um, to actually realize his vision. He hired them, he delegated. He, he could be a mean, tough perfectionist for sure, but he knew how to, to, how to create a team that would work with him and how to realize his grandiose vision. So I think it I think we do tend to fetishize people who who are, who have just great visions etc but I think it's a bit misguided we need to look at people who succeed over long periods of time and who are able to kind of execute what is, what what they're seeing in their heads
0: You mentioned Howard Hughes um I I I don't remember where I read this from but I, I understand that he had some form of OCD and was developing schizophrenia, maybe. I'm not sure if that's entirely true, but I know that he had some form of mental illness. I wanted to know if you if you felt there was a correlation between some of the, the negative aspects of human nature associated uh, in correlation with uh, mental illness. So, like, delusions of grandeur, for example, could that be um, associated with, say... Um, Aspects of bipolar, or or something like that.
1: Well, I'm not a doctor, and I and I, I don't like speculating on things that are a bit beyond uh, beyond my intelligence. Okay. But I, I want to take this out of the notion of a disease, um, because when it comes to something like grandiosity, I try to make the point. I have a chapter on it is that by nature, we humans are grandiose. So I define grandiosity as there is a discrepancy between what you think of yourself and the reality of who you are. And psychologists and marketing people and neuroscientists have demonstrated that we have always, always have a self-opinion that's elevated above the reality. We think we are, are kinder and nicer and more moral than we really are. We think we're more, into, we Some people don't, some people underestimate, that's another issue. But there are a lot of people who tend to overestimate who they are. And so there is a gap between who they really are, their real skills and their self-image, how they see themselves. So I like to see of it as there's the ground that you walk upon and with your grandiosity, your feet are lifted a couple feet off the ground. Some people are lifted 30 feet off the ground and they are truly, truly grandiose. Um, but I don't think of it as a disease because then that takes it out of the realm of, of you know, we don't, we're not responsible. There's nearly nothing we can do unless we want to make the point that all humans are diseased. So my point that I make in that chapter, if we're talking about grandiosity, is that success is often the cause of people turning grandiose. So if we look at someone like Donald Trump, who I would say fits very much the mold of someone who's grandiose, um, he has, from, since very early on in his life, has gotten away with so many things. He's always managed to kind of punch his way out of a bag or a dark corner. And, um, and the successes that he's had, which a lot of it is kind of just marketing success has kind of gone to his head and he thinks that he's got the golden touch that whatever he can do um you know it can't fail and i talk about michael eisner in head of disney for many years and he had an incredible string of success over 10 15 years and he lost touch with reality so if you took anybody if i took you or he took me and I you know, you started a business that was massively successful, you became a billionaire in a couple of years. You would start becoming grandiose, you would start imagining that you have all kinds of powers that you don't really have, because inevitably with Michael Eisner or Donald Trump, there's a huge element of luck for your success and other people helping you. And you're tending to subtract that and imagine everything stemmed from you. And so The antidote to grandiosity is to be aware um, that this is what's happening to you and to be aware of the element of luck, to be aware of the work of other people that contributed to your success. So, I mean, you know, there are elements of narcissism, for instance, where people who are deeply narcissistic, there might be a genetic component. They can't help it. There's some kind of weird chemistry inside themselves. I don't mean to deny that that some people might have deeper problems because of the way their brains are wired. I'm not a neuroscientist, but I definitely buy into that component in all of human nature. But I think we're all cut humans are cut from the same cloth. And you take anybody out there in this world and you give them enough success in life and their natural tendency to lose touch with reality will suddenly skyrocket and they won't be able to control it so circumstances will often play a very major role in what happens to to the elements in human nature
0: philosophies you mentioned buddhism is a plays a big factor in in in, in your life what about that plays a big factor in and and what other philosophies do you incorporate in your life that you found beneficial
1: yeah i i mean um buddhism uh, particularly uh, zen buddhism um is i think it's it really is not so much of a religion although you could classify it as a religion as more like a philosophy of reality what zen really means what zen is really about is what actually is the world what actually is going on and the idea that comes from buddhism itself is this idea of maya, of illusion, that we humans live in a world of illusion, that we live in the world of words and language and abstract concepts, and the idea of a self and an ego. And that the reality is something much different. The reality is that we're all in all forms of life are interconnected, that our consciousness is not, we're not just trapped inside of ourselves that we are deeply connected to other forms of life, to other people. And that Zen is a process of breaking down all the illusions that a human has and bringing you closer and closer to reality. And so, you know, if I'm meditating sometimes and I'm kind of trying to drop all the baggage and all those illusions and all those voices in my head, I have this feeling of like, wow, I'm getting in touch with really what's out there, what's really what, what you know, what, what time really is, what space really is, what people really are, what nature really is, who I am, my own mortality. And that sense of getting closer to reality is quite ecstatic. And that's how my approach to it is. And it's had a, a deep impact on me. Um, you know, I've been always very interested in Asian forms of philosophy because I find them much more kind of in tuned, attuned to to reality, to the back and forth nature of life, to things that are so much less judgmental. So Taoism has deep elements in that. It's what attracted me to Sun Tzu very early on, because I think his form of strategizing about life is so much deeper and richer than a lot of the books that Western writers write, because he's so much more in tuned to how th- things turn into their opposites, you might call it sort of dialectical thinking. I like people who are fluid in their thinking, who are not rigid, who don't come with sort of preset ideas and values. And there are plenty of philosophers in the Western world, people like Nietzsche or Henri Bergson, or others who have that kind of similar approach. um, And I've very much been influenced by them. Um, you know, someone like Baltasar Gracián, or even Machiavelli, to some extent, who's who's been a major influencer, particularly on in my first book, The 48 Laws of Power, and my Strategies of War book. Um, but in general, if I had to, to um, summarize it, I like thinkers and writers who have a certain fluidity to it, who come to life with a kind of an open mind, because I find that's more realistic that that's what really life is about.
0: What advice would you give to the the average twenty something year old who's just finished with college and is uncertain of his life path?
1: Well, I would tell him or her to to read my book, Mastery. I don't mean to, to toot my own horn, but I think it's I would agree. It's a book designed particularly for that for that problem, for that circumstance. Anybody who's 20, 21, 22, I think that's the person that would benefit the most from the book. And what I'm trying to teach you there is that um, you have a path in life that's going to lead to something very fulfilling. And that path is going to require some work and it's going to require a certain process you have to go through. And I, and I, and I illustrate this process. But the most critical thing, the first step, and if you don't follow this first step, you're never going to succeed in life. I can guarantee you this 100% is knowing who you are, knowing what makes you different, what what your tastes are, divorcing yourself from social media, divorcing yourself from everybody who's criticized you, your parents, your teachers, and tried to tell you who you are. It's about embracing what makes you unique and finding some way to bring out your own weirdness into your work, into creating a book, into starting a business, into wherever you go. It doesn't mean you have to be an entrepreneur. You could work inside of a company, etc. But if your work has no connection to something that is that is emotional, that appeals to you as an individual, you're going to burn out. You're going to get depressed. You're going to start drinking or taking drugs by the time you're 30 or 31. And you might be making money, but you won't be and unha- you'll be unhappy. So if you take that first step and, you know, give yourself a framework that you're now going to move into. Um, and what I mean by that is in your 20s, it's a time of experimenting. I call it the years of your apprenticeship. You're going to give yourself seven to 10 years of learning skills in different fields, things that excite you but I want you to have it as an adventure, not some rigid little plan that you have. You're willing to try different things. So my framework when I was 21, was I wanted to be a writer. And that meant trying all different kinds of jobs, going into journalism, going into Hollywood, trying to write novels, and then taking other kinds of jobs because a writer has to have life experiences. So I worked, you know, I had like 50 different jobs, so many different kinds of things. You know, it sounds like I'm crazy. You know, I worked in construction. I worked for a detective agency. I worked for an encyclopedia company, on and on and on. Um, But knowing who you are, knowing an overall course direction of your life, not so narrow that it's too constricting, but an overall direction of something that you love and experimenting and having some adventure and trying things out and developing skills and being serious about it at some point let's say when you're 30 or 31 if you do this you will because people who are younger their minds are more fluid and they're more creative those are your prime years in your 30s for creating a great business for instance if you play it right your, your head is filled with all of these great skills and ideas that you picked up and a point you will reach a point where some amazing opportunity will come your way. Or you'll come up with some brilliant idea and all of your hard work and all of your trying things out will come together into something brilliant. But it won't matter. It won't ever happen unless you take that first step, unless you read chapter one in mastery about discovering your life's task and what you were meant to accomplish in this world.